Welcome to the New Growth Podcast with Nikki Walton. Join her as she explores divine love as a key to spiritual growth, empowered service, and inner and outer success. If you'd like to support Nikki's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Nikki. Welcome back to New Growth. After you get done listening to this episode, I would love for you to check out my other podcast, Good Mornings with Curly Nikki, also known as God Mornings with Curly Nikki, available on Apple Podcasts. Please listen, subscribe, leave a review, and you can start waking up with me, waking up as love every single day of the week. Monday through Friday, I drop a new episode And each one consists of a different spiritual practice, what I like to call easy access doors into this truth, into this oneness. And so we're just practicing love every morning until, you know, we recognize that we never had to practice it, that we are it. So check it out. Check it out. Join me every morning, every good morning, every God morning. (laughs) Good mornings with Curly Nikki. I'll see you there. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Growth. I'm your host, Nikki Walton, and today with with me is Sharon Salzberg. She's a best-selling author and New York Times best-selling author. She's like the queen, the queen of meditation, (laughs) (laughs) the queen of meditation, meta, loving kindness. Sharon, thank you. I'm so honored to finally be able to chat with you. I feel like I've been running after you forever. This is beautiful and feels like I've come full circle. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And I, I am sometimes uh, like now kind of overwhelmed. So I, yeah. I I do take some pursuing, but I'm so grateful you did that. Man. Yeah. I'm very persistent, <laughs> especially when I'm like itching to have a conversation. And <laughs> there's so much like, you know, I, I came upon your writings with the word happiness, you know, like when I was seeking happiness, like what is happiness? But before we get into like real happiness, I would love to know what your experience is of the present moment, like this now, how do you experience it? Um, It's kind of interesting because I spent most of the kind of pandemic duration up in Barry, Mass, where I have a home and a retreat center, the Insight Mm. Meditation Society, which closed down. And uh, I also have an apartment in New York City, which is where I'm speaking to you from Mm. today. And it was March, um, March 2020. I had just gotten back to New York from um, being uh, in California the whole month Mm. of Mm. February. And um, I was teaching and, and actually first I did a, a weekend with Krishnadas at ah. Kripalu uh, Yoga Center. And Amazing. looking back, it was like 200 people in a completely airless room, like no window, <laughs> singing. Somehow we all survived. Right. I think we did. And then uh, I got to New York and I just started feeling like there's so much anxiety and everyone's so freaked out and I'm starting yeah. to freak out. Like, yeah. And uh, I thought I'll just go up to Barry for two weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I came up here in March, came up there in March, 2020 with my snow boots thinking it was going to be for two weeks and it was over a year. <laughs> Goodness gracious. So, wow. uh, and that was very, you know, we made a big push to somehow get the retreat center online and mm-hmm. be able to serve people. And, 
I felt like very connected to people. And yeah. um, it was it was just this extraordinary time. It's like the outpouring of grief and loss and fear. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and uh, myself, I had a book that came out, my most recent book called Real Change. It came out uh, mm. in September of 2020 and it was supposed to come out in June and they postponed it. And right. With the postponement, I had the chance to write a new preface. And so ah, the perfect. overwhelming question for me that I kept asking myself was, what's still true? Mm. Like in all this disruption and craziness and fear and sorrow, what's still true? Like what's holding you up? You know, and, and that pointed me right back to my meditation experience, you know, yes. which um, I started practicing. January of 1971 in Bodh Gaya, India, you know, so it's been a long time with a lot of people, you know, actually. And, uh, you know, so then the book came out and I I lived my life in Barry and I was online constantly trying to serve people. And then there was, as you know, this sort of moment of relief, you know, it's like things were opening. I came back to New York and now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's kind of scary again, you know, it's like very interesting. And I see that from my friends here, like, I don't know quite how to navigate it all. You know, I've, I lived a very quiet, solitary life, except for being constantly online, but You know, I'm not used to like, you know, do I go in there? And like, what about exactly. the mask? Like, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So I'm sort of, uh, and I, I just feel for people so much, you know, it's like know. people are so tired. And What's your number one recommendation then for this fear? Like when it hit last year and you said too, that you were a little scared. I know I was, and I actually went within myself for a while. I stopped offering everything for like, yeah two or three months, because I just, I knew I needed to settle first, but what would be your recommendation for people with fear around the pandemic, but just fear in general? Cause that's a very strong yes. and heavy emotion that yeah. we all deal with. Well, it's two things actually. One is, um, and in a way they're kind of connected when I've sat in meditation and looked at my own fear, which I've mm-hmm. had plenty of time to do through my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I've seen is it's a very personal kind of insight, but I think it's not just me that mm. despite the world's pronouncement that we're afraid of the unknown, which of course is true, I get really afraid when I think I do know and it's going to be really bad. Man, and it's all the yes. stories that I tell oh, myself. Oh, that's good. That is so good. That's true. And yes. Even in the midst of that cascade, if I remind myself, you know what? You don't know. I feel space. I feel relief. You know, so so that's been a very important insight for me. And then the other thing wow. um, is just the story, which I've only uh, recently started telling again about. Um, and I think it's not just for fear. I think it's that sense of incredible exhaustion people have, too. I was mm-hmm. teaching once in, in Barry at the Insight Meditation Society, and um, the person I was teaching with was giving the evening talks. I was just mm-hmm. sitting there and listening. And she's someone who had begun her meditation practice at that center, mm. I don't know, 20 years before, something like that. And, and she started telling a story about her first retreat. Mm. And she said, I was so overcome with restlessness that I went in to see Sharon, who was one of the teachers. And I mm. said to her, 
has anyone ever died of restlessness? And she said, and of course, like I had no memory whatsoever. I thought, what did I say? You know? And and she said, not from just one moment at a time of it. And I thought that is a really good answer. That is an amazing answer. Powerful you know, so answer. That's been coming up in my mind so much these days, because of course, yeah. the natural human tendency is to think another six months or exactly. let's try exactly. to experience the whole next year right now. Right. right. And just, it's like, it's just this moment. This is what I have to deal with right now. Wow. Those are two very, very powerful quotes. I feel like I need to write them down, but we are recording. Thank God. <laughs> I will write them down later. <laughs> it's like, I feel that uh, I'm looking for a pen, but it's good. You are amazing. I love, love, love what you said about fear. Cause that's me. It's not the unknown. It's I've decided that I know what's coming and it is horrible and <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to freak myself out. But like you, I've been watching that you know, especially lately, whenever a fear comes up about, about anything, you know, mm-hmm. I look at it and I'm like, how do, is that true? Kind of like, like Byron Katie too. Like, yeah, is this yeah. true? Can I know for sure if this is true? No. And then I just kind of let it go. And I have another permission slip I use, which is since it hurts, it's not true. It's like God saying, Hey, I don't agree with you. So just mm-hmm. let that go mm-hmm. and return nice. to the present moment. <laughs> And, you know, it just it just helps me feel better in that moment. And I can focus again on something more productive. But I would love to know about your definition of real happiness. Like what is true happiness? Oh, that is really funny because um, that book, which was maybe 11 years ago, came out. um, Powerful book. Thank you. Uh, Originally was called and, and for quite a bit of its process in publication was called why meditate? Because that's what it was about. Ah, and then I, like I got um, an advanced copy of my friend Matthew Ricard's forthcoming book, which mm-hmm. was called Why Meditate. Mm-hmm. And his was coming out in September. Mine was coming out the following January or something. So we had yeah. a scramble for another title. And the publisher came up with Real Happiness. And That's an excellent one. <laughs> yeah, I think it is really Kudos. good. But I was also a little ambivalent about it because I thought, oh, I'm going to get into trouble with this. And I did, you know, I went on tour Mm -hmm. with the book and people often have a sense of happiness as something very superficial. Of course, they've defined it. Yeah. You know, we're already seeking that constantly anyway. Like, you know, and what do you mean real? Are you saying the happiness Mm -hmm. I have isn't real? So it was it was a little bit, you know, a challenge (laughs) along the way. But uh, I think it is so fundamentally what we want. It's just sort of the same question all yes. those years later. Exactly. I asked myself when I, I would say, what's holding you up? You know, what are you counting on? What's still true? Mm-hmm. If all the things we normally rely on day to day are not happening, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what's what's there? And, and uh, I think there is a quality of happiness we can access through presence, through connection, mm-hmm. Uh, not through things or even experiences as we've learned, right. you know, right. off of this last year. Um, but in a deeper place in our being, I think it really is available to us. Thank goodness. You know? Yes. Yeah. Like an in, in innate happiness yeah. that we can always turn to. What started you on your path to seeking that innate, like real happiness? Like where were you in time and space when you began this journey? Uh, in time and space, I guess I was in Buffalo, New York. I was a college student 
And I took an Asian philosophy course in my sophomore year. Honestly, as I often say, as far as I can remember, out of kind of happenstance, I looked, there was a philosophy requirement. I had to do some philosophy course. Mm -hmm. And I looked at the schedule and I thought, that's on Tuesday. That's convenient. Let me do that one. (laughs) Exactly. And yeah, I'll do that one. And uh, the course totally changed my life. It was, um, first of all, in in talking about Buddhism or the Buddhist teaching, and the very famous refrain of the Buddhas where he said suffering is a part of life. It's just there, you know, and it's inevitable. That translated in my mind, I having had a very, uh, like many people do, a very traumatic, difficult childhood that translated in my mind to, oh, you're not so weird. You know, it's not just you. You're not so different. This is a part of life in different degrees, yeah. obviously, in different uh, elements, you know, of life, but this is something we actually do share. Mm. And so I, I think it was maybe the first time in my life I felt I really belonged in a bigger picture. And then I heard in the context of the class that there were practices, there were methods, there were techniques you could use, and they were called meditation. And if you mm. did them, you could be a lot happier. And I, you know, I was going to college in Buffalo and I I looked around Buffalo. I didn't see it anywhere. This is 1970. Mm. So the university had an independent study program. And if you created a project that they liked, you could go anywhere in the world theoretically for a year. So I said, I want to go to India and learn how to meditate. And they said, okay. So off I went. Ah, charmed life. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was especially that, you know, I look at that so often and, Mm. Because I was really frightened. I mean, that's sort of my mode. I was 18 years old. I'd skipped mm-hmm. two grades in public school. Wow. And I'd never even been to California before. I grew up in New York City, went to college in Buffalo. And suddenly I'm going to India. And I think, how did I do that? You know? Wow. That's beautiful. I love that. Love that. And so when you got to India, what was it like? Who did you work with? Or who, you know, who were the teachers? Mm-hmm. Well, I was very... Um, kind of pragmatically oriented. I really wanted to know the how to, you know, like mm. I wanted a method. I wanted, I wanted a process and yeah. I couldn't quite find it for a while. You know, I wandered around. I was with a small group of friends. I, we wandered around. Uh, I started out in, first of all, we didn't just arrive in India. We went overland, you know, as many people mm-hmm. did. So mm-hmm. that was a process. And then, yeah. uh, in India started out in Dharamsala because I knew the Dalai Lama was there. And I'd heard he was a Buddhist, but that, oh, you know, maybe I'll learn how to meditate there. And mm-hmm. there were like incredible teachers and opportunities, but nothing quite worked. It was, it was very much like, um, you know, you show up for the meditation class and they'd say, oh, the translator had to go to the dentist at the other end of India. He'll be back in a few <laughs> weeks, you know. Fine. And then it was just like, <laughs> and then I overheard, um, in a Tibetan restaurant, this was, you know, like months later, I overheard mm-hmm. that there was going to be an international yoga conference in New Delhi, not the yoga conference. And I said, oh, maybe I'll go there and I'll find my teacher there. So we went there and that was a completely dismal, terrible experience where the low point was when these yogis and swamis were pushing and shoving against each other 
to be the first to grab the mic and speak. And then um, I don't even know how, you know, all these years later, I still haven't asked him how it happened, but Dan Goldman was actually speaking at that conference. Wow. At the time, he was a graduate student in psychology studying meditation. And for some reason, he, he was invited and accepted giving a talk at this conference. So I went to his talk and he mentioned that he was going to go to this town called Bodhgaya um, and uh, do this intensive 10-day meditation retreat that Ram Dass was going to be there as a student. <laughs> and I'd heard oh, him lecture, you know, in Buffalo. And, uh, oh, so you had already heard Ram Dass. I'd heard him speak in Buffalo and Fabulous. had, I think, the psychedelic experience, one of those early, early books, you know. Yes. So I knew who he was. And, mm-hmm. and the way Dan uh, described the retreat, it was very much like, um, it's very practical. It's very direct. It's just what, what I was interested wanted. in. So I <laughs> yeah. thought, maybe that's it. And it was it. So yeah. I followed him with a number of other people who heard him speak to Bodh Gaya and began my first retreat. And it was at my first retreat that I met um, Krishna Das, Ram Das, a lot of Dasas. They weren't Dasas. Um, Ram Das was Ram Das, but Krishna Das was Jeffrey. And this wow. is before they'd gone off and, and found Maharaji. And, this, well, that was uh, an nearby, epic meeting. Who was Linda. Was yes. it? That's, that's an epic meeting. Of yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah, we've been friends for a very long time. Wow. Did you go with them to meet Maharaji? No, that's a famous story, too. I want to hear that, too. Well, first finish the story about the 10-day intensive, because yeah, I've so never done a Buddhist, you know, um, like intensive meditation retreat, only silent retreats. Yeah, so it was it was a very, uh, it was a beautiful retreat, uh, challenging. I mean, I never even looked within myself before, really, you know, mm. and, and uh, uh, it began with like concentration on the breath and then moved to what these days we call a body scan, like mm-hmm. moving your attention through your body. It ended with a little bit of loving kindness meditation. Um, and then Goenka, who is the teacher, and Goenka, he had just come from Burma mm-hmm. to India and um he taught a series of 10-day retreats there. And we all stayed, you know, through through many retreats. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then uh, Ram Das and this group of people decided to, to hire this bus and go off and look for Maharaji. So mm-hmm. sometimes when I'm teaching with Krishna Das, we each tell the story from our own angle. <laughs> Yes, like my angle it. is waving goodbye to the bus <laughs> and seeing them all go off. And once he said to me, why didn't you get on the bus? Yeah. And I said, you didn't even know where he was. I wasn't, I mean, I just found practice and I was like, right. Found myself, you know, I mean, it was just yeah. like this incredible time and yeah. you didn't even know where the man was, you know, why should I get on the bus? So I said, <laughs> how long did it take you to find him? And he said, well, 10 hours or something or two hours, <laughs> or, you know, like, I thought it was going to be like months of being on a bus. Right. In India, you right. Know? Um, so it's it's very funny from each angle. Wow. Wow. Did you ever meet him? Did you go back to India? I, I, I guess did that was go back 72. to India. I never met him. Um, 
And I, uh, I sort of followed a very assiduously Buddhist path through mm. uh, my Burmese teachers, Tibetan teachers. And then um, I, entered, I had to go back to Buffalo and finish school. And then I went back to India. So I'm not even quite sure of the years, but I think it was still maybe my first trip. Okay. Um, when somebody brought me to his ashram, he had already died, Maharaji. Mm-hmm. But uh, we went to the Brindavan ashram and, and uh, nice. it was there when he was already not in the body that I, f- you know, felt a very strong connection um, with him. Beautiful. So, yeah. beautiful. You know, that made me think when you said earlier, loving kindness and that meditation, it makes me think of Ram Dass's mantra, I am loving awareness. Is yeah. that meta or is that something else? Like, is it, I think it's, it's a combo, same? actually. Okay. I think he, he took meta and, and uh, mindfulness and, and forged them together. Mm. Uh, because meta or loving kindness in many ways is at the heart of mindfulness to be mm-hmm. able to see all our emotions and all our thought patterns and all our stuff and in the light of that kind of loving acceptance is, mm-hmm. is not easy. And it's what mindfulness really is, you know? So right. there's like kind of a hidden heart of it is, is loving kindness. And some right. days these, sometimes these days people are struggling because the word mindfulness sounds so cold and clinical. Yeah. And right. so they say, we'll call it warm mindfulness or call it <laughs> kindfulness or call it had, loving oh, awareness. Or, I hadn't heard that one. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard heartfulness. Is that the same thing or is that something else? Yeah. Yeah. So many names for the same, you know, destination, right? The same practice for you is meta, like meta. Does it feel like you're loving the anger when it comes? Like, are you aware of the anger and then simultaneously becoming aware of love too? Uh, I think that's the meta aspect of, of mindfulness, just in terms of technique. Mm-hmm. Metta would be kind of loving yourself, even if mm-hmm. you're angry, you know. Mm. And of course, then we have to really understand what love is, uh, especially if you're thinking about loving someone else, yes. even though they're angry. You know? Yes, yes. What's your definition of love? Uh, a profound sense of connection. Mm. You know, I think if if you're talking about love for another it doesn't necessarily mean you like them or you approve mm-hmm. of them or you're not going to fight their actions or, um, but it's this deep, deep knowing that our lives are intertwined, mm-hmm. that, that there's an us there, you know, and, uh, and with oneself too, that underneath our uh, personalities and our fears and, and all of our conditioning, there's, um, there's the possibility of, of like strength and clarity and, and connection that we can, we can really reach. We can access that. Mm, that's beautiful. So taking it to your word, like the practical application, let's say you are face-to-face with someone that's challenging to love. What do you do? Um. The most important kind of, for me, like model I return to is remembering that um, metta is a heart space that it doesn't demand a certain action. It doesn't mean I have mm-hmm. to say yes. It doesn't mean I have to stay in their presence. It doesn't mean I have to 
pretend, you know, everything yeah, is okay. Right, exactly. Um, it's sort of, it almost comes back sometimes in my mind to one of Maharaji's most famous sayings was never throw anyone out of your heart. Never yes. throw anyone out of your heart. I love that. Mm-hmm. And one of my colleagues, my friend Sylvia Borstein, had a kind of addendum to that. She said, mm-hmm. never throw anyone out of your heart. You might throw them out of your life, but never throw them out of your heart. Amen. That's an excellent addendum. (laughs) Yes. Necessary addendum. (laughs) Yeah. I I often remind myself of that, you know, that Mm -hmm. I have to let wisdom or discernment or intuition Mm -hmm. or uh, other elements inform my decision about what to say or what to do or pulling back or whatever it might be. But my heart space Exactly. Always be one of connection. And I think, you know, I I meet a lot of people who are afraid of the idea of loving kindness because they think it means you have to say yes. Mm -hmm. You have to be sweet, you know. Right. You get walked all over. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. It's not necessarily like, like you said, it's not changing your actions necessarily. It's like a feeling habit, staying in that natural state of loving awareness and then being able to use your discernment to know, okay, now it is time to go. That's right. (laughs) And I take this self somewhere else (laughs) with this love. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. I love it. I love it. So tell me what your daily practice looks like, your meditation practice and how it's changed over your journey. Well, it's changed, you know, over and over again. In uh, 1985, I went to Burma for three months. Actually, Ramdas was there too as a student. And uh, wow. this is when he left um, because his stepmother got really ill and, and he had to leave pretty quickly. He, I remember him knocking on my door and he gave me his whole stash of like M&Ms and things, <laughs> you know, he brought. I love it. I love it. Get him through. Yeah. The Burma is very austere. Um, <laughs> and I did an intensive period of loving kindness for three months because it is its own method, even though they all blend and support each other, you know, it is its own technique as well. And so it was mm-hmm. the first time I'd gotten a chance to really go deep in that technique. And mm-hmm. it was so impactful for me that I came back and started teaching it right away. And um, and for a long time, I think four years, loving kindness was my only practice. It's what I did all the time. And, uh, and then I had a Burmese teacher and he kind of said, well, you know, it's time to go back to mindfulness, you know, and, mm. uh, which I did. And, uh, then when my, I do sit every day and, and in my daily sitting, it really became kind of, you could say loving awareness, but not look. Loving kindness as a practice also involves phrases like holding mm. people in your heart and thinking, may you be safe, may you be happy, you know? So uh, I like the way I, Krishna Das ends his. Yeah, um, exactly. Singing. That's that's where he got it from. Whenever, when exactly. as soon as he does it, I think of you every single time. I'm like, oh, that's Sharon coming through KD yeah, yeah, <laughs> at the end of every Thursday true, night. <laughs> yeah. um, that. That's where he got it from. And uh, so, um, you know, my formal practice would not be the phrases when I sat every day, but I had a resolve to use loving kindness whenever I was waiting. And I counted every mode of transportation as waiting. Mm-hmm. So walking yep. down the streets of New York or sitting on an airplane or sitting in the subway, whatever it was, 
I would silently be looking at people and thinking maybe happy, maybe safe, things like that. Um, and then uh, interestingly enough, in this last year when I was alone so much and not traveling at all, mm-hmm. and uh, I went back to much more formal loving kindness. And uh, as well, usually we divide meditation into two aspects. One is like a formal practice. You're sitting or you're walking. Mm-hmm. It's very purposeful. Um, and the other is uh, what one Tibetan teacher once calls short moments many times. It's like you take a breath before you answer yes. the phone or you look at somebody and you think maybe happy, maybe peaceful before you start the meeting, you know, just mm-hmm. like little moments yes, I love throughout that. there. And so those became uh, more kind of also more possible in my mm-hmm. change schedule, you know, right, and uh, right. And more fun. And and so um, my overall resolve for the, the past year is to be kinder in very real ways. And so that has notably involved not sending emails, not pressing send on the email once I've written it, but mm. reading it again. Powerful practice. And then <laughs> I've been doing that too. Know, oh, you know, <laughs> if I got that email, I might misunderstand it and think it was this other thing and yeah that was said kind of tersely you know maybe (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) taking the time to go back and put a greeting instead of just like immediately going into the ask I have to do that too sometimes just that kind of thing yeah no it's a powerful like pause okay reread like you said before you hit that send that's key that's so key and then it changes their day changes their day too. I feel like even though I've never formally practiced metta, it's my life. (laughs) Like I feel like my version is like the Christian mystics, Brother Lawrence practicing the presence Mm -hmm. of God, Mm -hmm. of love. Every step, every breath, everything Mm -hmm. I do, I'm reaching for that. I'm turning Mm -hmm. toward that. I'm always, it's there. Yeah, and it's been a practice here for at least like six years now. Like my main practice, even though I sit formally and I do a lot of japa as well, newly again, like in the last year, I'm doing the japa in that love. You know, I'm watching the japa happen in that love, and it helps and it keeps that restlessness at bay too. Whenever I'm noticing I'm restless, like we talked about earlier, I immediately recognize I'm not restless, I just forgot love. And then I feel for that love again. And then the restlessness might still be there, but it peters out. That's beautiful. So how did you find uh, the Be Here Now Network? I'm curious. Oh, yes. Um, so I had just gotten back from Spain. I had went to Madrid and had fun with friends and my sister and her husband. And they actually surprised me and took me to Avila. Av- Avila? Is that how you pronounce it? St. Teresa's? Yes, every like everything about her, like for a whole day. And I got lost in the city actually. And my sister was like, if we don't find her, Nikki's gonna get a habit and stay at the convent. (laughs) Like I was. So they found me, they brought me back home. And when I got home, I could feel deeply that I needed to finally start doing more in this space because it's all I cared about, spiritual space. It's all I care about, it's all I talk about. I mean, even with random strangers at a restaurant or at a bar or on the airplane, this is what the conversation turns into every time, no matter who it is. And I reached out 
and I just wanted to know if, you know, I reached out to Ragu and I'm like, are you all doing any virtual retreats, you know, anything coming up? And he said, we don't do too many, but, you know, podcasts, you'd be interested in that. And I'm like, I don't even listen to podcasts. I don't know anything about podcasting, but sure, <laughs> I'll, I'll try, you know, I'll do my hey, best. And so... I just started kind of brainstorming on what that would look like. And I had some friends like in the entertainment industry that I knew were into spirituality, like Tracy Ellis Ross and her sister, Rhonda Ross. They were my first interview. And then I just started reaching out to my teachers, you know, people like you, so I could have these candid conversations where I get to hear what your journey has been like and share a bit more about mine. And yeah, it's been, it's once a month. And that was what I could commit to at the time. And mm -hmm. it felt so good. And also nothing ever happens by mistake because Ragu sent um, a mala, a little one, you know, like 27 beads and the guru bead. And it had one of Maharashi's uh, like strings from the blanket. Oh, nice. And so nice. I immediately was like, oh, I haven't chanted like Sanskrit words in years. I'm like, let me get started again. So yeah. of course, like I bought a couple more Ram Dass books because I hadn't had like a revisit since like 2013. When I first found Ram Dass, it was 2013. So now it's 2020, you know, I'm kind of cracking those books back open, getting new ones, like, because I'd given books away. And I found myself chanting and singing Krishna Das music all day long. I still like, that's my background. Like that's my whole life is just listening to beautiful, uplifting music like that. And mm -hmm. I email him a lot. <laughs> and um, I started chanting formally the Maha Mantra, November 28th, 2020, every day, 16 rounds in the morning and four at Ooh. night. Now I do 16 in the morning and 16 at night. Wow. And it's, I believe that my new podcast, um, Good Mornings with Curly Nikki, came out of that practice. So I started that in November. And then by like January, February of 2021, because I was waking up at 5 a.m. to get the 16 rounds in before my life began, I was like, I feel so inspired and so good. It felt like I needed to be doing more than just typing on Instagram every day, long mm -hmm. captions that I'm sure only 10 people were reading. <laughs> so <laughs> like maybe there's some other offering and this, that idea to share just short form podcast episodes every single day started to take shape. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So I, now I wake up at like 4, 15, 4 30 every morning. You are awesome. It is hard. It is not easy. <laughs> I'm tired now. <laughs> I feel like I'm always tired, but that inner, that love is there and it, it's pushing, even though this body is tired, yeah. you know, yeah. and I don't eat right. I, I try to do my best with that. I don't eat enough because I'm always so busy. And, but this love, you know, I feel like if it wasn't for the focus on that, the practice of that, the blessing of the remembrance of that and the anchor of that, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I wouldn't be living where I'm living now. I wouldn't know the people. I wouldn't be talking to you. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been to Ram Das's house, you know, last month. All of this has become, it's like that love took form as all of this. That's so great. Whereas so somebody like Raghu would say, Maharaji took you under his blanket. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Happy, you know, like. <laughs> exactly that. Exactly that. I love him. I love the whole team. And I've always watched you from afar and love what you do. I love you and KD together. You and Krishnadas are a great teaching team, you know, so yeah, full of love. 
So cool. How has that relationship blossomed over the years? When did you all start like formally working together? Uh, it would be interesting to remember, which I wish I could. <laughs> um, we, it, it was many years later, because of course he wasn't singing. I mean, you know, I used to go see him sing in these tiny little rooms and, you know, mm-hmm. different places. And That's right, because um, y'all are all from New York. That's cool. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, it just, it just came up, you know, but now of course the years go by, I could say it wasn't that long ago. It was 20 years ago. Twenty five years ago. You know? <laughs> it goes it by so fast too. Ago. I had no idea how fast time moved. This is really strange. Yeah, all of it. Yeah. So no, you, it I can't really even strange. like you saying, you sing Kirtan. I think of you being like, so Buddhist, you know, like so clean Buddhist, like what's <laughs> <Yeah>. your favorite, <laughs> what's your favorite um, chant? Uh, well, I would probably say to Chalisa, you know. Ah, uh, yeah. I've learned it. I've learned it. <laughs> that was another it. thing I did last year. I did a good. lot during the pandemic, and one of them was learning the Chalisa, and I learned to Bernie's Chalisa. Um, yeah, you know yeah. that version that him. Yeah. And there's also a beautiful woman named Savani Mata, and I just found her a few months ago. And she has. I'm going to send you the link. And I'll put it in the show notes too. I'm going to send you the link of her version. And it's like, if you're a fan of like Francis and the Machine, is that that group, that woman with the gorgeous voice? She, it sounds like the Chalisa from her. Like if Francis did the Chalisa, it is mm-hmm. really a really beautiful version. I'll send it to you. Yeah, please do. Like, you know, I've known uh, people through the years tell me, um, I could only listen to Christian Das when I was going through chemo or when I yeah. was having this, you know, ordeal or when I was opening up, you know, this like amazing opportunity or, you know, he, he's really meant so much to so many people. And I feel, yeah, you know, honored that I've been, you know, watching it <laughs> develop. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure he feels the exact same way about you. So thank you, thank you to both of you. It's been cool. I got to speak with him before. I did an interview with him a few months mm-hmm. back, and now I'm talking to you. So thank That's you. That's great. <laughs> Can you tell my audience how to keep up with you and all of your offerings? Uh, well, my website is just SharonSalzberg.com, and um, I'm writing another book. But <laughs> of course you are. Of, of course. course. <laughs> that is a large part of who you are for us and your service to just help us all experience that real happiness. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me so beautifully of the innate power of love, you know, Mm. how, how it's always there. It's always here. Only love is here. And that's my little mantra, only love. And thank you all as always for tuning in. I love you and we'll chat soon. 